You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar and Usman Manan, and we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we do have some very interesting uh, topics for you today. The uh, first topic we are going to be speaking about religious students begging in Nigeria. Is a dynasty uh, of indigents uh, being promoted? Um, in the second segment, we are going to be addressing uh, the uh, successful um, obliteration of lethal brain tumors, exploring the development of a new method. Um, and uh, usually, you'll know that we we have uh, three topic, uh, two topics, uh, but on occasions we also speak about three different topics as well. So today we're going to be doing the same. Um, the third topic for today is significant amount of oxygen generated through MOXIE experiment on Mars. And the question over there is what is next? Uh, so do stay tuned for all of these interesting topics. Uh, we'll be speaking to various guests uh, when it comes to this as well. Um, but um, uh, uh, before speaking about all of these, of course, we are going to be going through the news and the headlines as well. Um, but 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 yeah, before getting into that, Osman, how are you doing uh, today? Uh, Alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well. How are you? Very good, very good. Thank you. Uh, by the grace of Allah the Almighty. And uh, what's the what's the weather looking like? Uh, I mean, it's uh, it is a bit uh, not very cold, but it's uh, I mean it's. Uh, it's it's mild uh, today. It seems mild, and and the, and the temperature doesn't seem too bad as well, isn't it? Uh, but if we look at the outlook for for the day, much of the UK will have a dry and bright day. But the far north of Scotland will see a few light showers as well. However, southern areas will be cloudy with uh, spells of rain in places throughout. Um, and uh, what about tonight, uh, Usman? Yeah, so tonight spells uh, spells of persistent rain will linger across southern areas through the night. These locally heavy uh, with a risk of thunder. Elsewhere will be largely clear, but it will turn cloudy in the northwest mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's, the, what's it looking like for, for tomorrow and even the rest of the week, even, uh, um, Osman? Yeah, tomorrow's going to be a little bit breezy with plenty of sun spells. So the far south will see spells of rain through the morning, uh, turning drier through the day. Northern areas will be cooler with a few showers. And for Thursday to Saturday, um, the strong northerly flow will bring heavy, blustery showers across northern areas. It will also turn cooler. There will be plenty of sunny spells. However, showers will continue across northern and eastern areas on Friday with some strong gust, uh, gusts likely. Further west will be largely settled. Saturday will be dry for most, but some rain is likely in the north. So it looks like uh, the rain is um, going to continue throughout the week. 
you know, sometimes a bit heavy, sometimes a little bit on, on depending on the areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, so, 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 I mean, the weather isn't as great as it, as it has been in the past uh, a couple of weeks, and we are s- sort of slowly drifting away from uh, the the summer period as well, isn't it? Um, newspaper headlines. So, the king's uh, vigil and MP uh, PM uh, under pressure. So if we we'll go through um the the headlines as well uh there's images of the queen's grieving children as they stand around their mother's coffin dominate Tuesday's front pages of course the daily telegraph like many other papers chooses the powerful image of king charles and his siblings as they stand around their mother's coffin at monday's vigil in edinburgh it details how the siblings walk together up the aisle uh, of St. Gill's uh, Cathedral before dividing to stand at each side, showing she was not alone, uh, quote-unquote. The paper says the royals chose not to hold swords, but instead stood with their hands held together and their eyes lowered as members of the public walked by. So the Metro keeps its front page simple with an image of King Charles III, starring into the distance. The newspaper adds now the Queen's only daughter, Princess Anne, because uh, became the first woman to be part of, of the historic vigil for the, princess, uh, for the princess ceremony. It has only previously been carried out by male members of the royal family, it reports. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, da- uh, Daily Mail leads on King Charles III and his three siblings standing at each of the four corners of their mother's coffin uh, as they held a vigil at St. Gill's Cathedral in Edinburgh on Monday. The paper reported how thousands of well-wishers also filed past the coffin uh, where it will remain for 24 hours being flown back to London. Uh, The Mirror's correspondent describes being one of those who attend the vigil for the Queen as the public paid their respect, quote, being so close felt strangely personal. Their correspondent writes and brought home the magnitude of her passing. The Sun goes into detail about who else attended the vigil, including members of the Royal Company of Archers, uh, who were the Queen's official bodyguards when she was in Scotland. The paper also reports on how Prince Harry will not wear his military uniform at the Queen's funeral after stepping down as a senior working royal with his wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, in 2020. The Financial Times also lead on the vigil, uh, highlighting how the new king has vowed to uphold the precious principles of UK democracy. The front page of the paper also looks at Germany's goal to develop a leading military military role in Europe as the country's defence minister calls for Berlin to step up amid the ongoing Ukraine war. The Guardian takes a slightly different approach to most of the other newspapers. Its uh, front page uh, looks at how Prime Minister Liz Truss could be under pressure to reveal further details about her energy crisis plan before the Commons breaks uh, up for the party, uh, for, for party conferences towards the end of September. The paper says Tory MPs want Miss Truss to set out her plans for an emergency budget to bring in winter tax cuts for millions of people and to give information on energy handouts by next Friday. The eye looks at how the constitutional duties came to a halt on Monday as the Queen's children stood guard around their mother's coffin, while the public, feel, f- f- uh, while the public filed past. 
King Charles wore the princess, uh, the Prince Charles Edward Stuart tartan and white heather from the Balmoral estate in his lapel. The paper says he was greeted by people outside the cathedral chanting, Here he is, here he is, it's the king. Mm. Um, uh, before going into the other segment, uh, the the other newspapers, just a few more left for the day as well. Um, this is a special segment in memoriam of the of the Queen as well, um, and uh, of, of course we have been speaking about this in the last uh, uh, two uh, breakfast shows as well. Um, yesterday on Monday, and of course on Friday last week as well. Um, and there are a few uh, 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 tributes uh, to the Queen from the Tuesday team as well here on The Breakfast Show. Um, so Ramin Masood has said that the demise of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is truly a sombre and melancholic occasion. Personally, I draw great inspiration from the Queen's kind and sublime, uh, sublime demeanour, her passion for service and loyalty, and indeed her irreplaceable legacy. Indeed, she was the epitome of phenomenal service to the world through her various duties towards the nation and the Commonwealth countries. As the mother of the nation, she was, uh, she was the scintillating light and th- that guided, inspired and empowered many lives. Uh, another member of the team has said that I feel deeply saddened to hear about the demise of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. We are forever grateful for her benevolent 70 years of reign and servitude. My sincerest condolences and prayers go to the royal family and people of Britain at this time of sorrow and loss. Um, And then I'll just read out one more message from the team as well. My deepest condolences to the royal family and all the British people on the passing of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II. Her historic reign lasted over seven decades and was a much-loved and respected figure worldwide. Um, Following on, the Times uh, focuses on how the royal family united in grief for the Queen's vigil, showing a picture of the huge crowds watching as the Queen's coffin was driven away from the palace of Holyrood House uh, to St. Gillis Cathedral in Edinburgh to lie at rest for 24 hours. Meanwhile, the Daily Star shares fears of 30-hour queues as the public descends on the Palace of Westminster in London, where the Queen's coffin will lie in state from Wednesday afternoon until Monday 19th September, the day of the funeral. The front page shows a picture of King Charles leading his family in the procession in Edinburgh. Finally, the Daily Express leads on the vigil for the Queen as her children grieve for their darling mama. Uh, The paper explains how King Charles previously stood in vigil when the Queen Mother died, when her four grandsons carried out the duty. Uh, So as you can see, I mean, almost all of the front pages uh, feature pictures of King Charles and his three siblings standing on each side of their mother's coffin in St. Gillis Cathedral in Edinburgh as members of the public file past. The King's Vigil is the Sun's headline, while the Daily Mail describes it as a silent vigil for a queen and mother. The Daily Mirror says it's a picture of dignity and sorrow, quote-unquote. The paper's reporter describes how she queued for 12 hours to pass to file, uh, file past the coffin and met a 72-year-old woman who arrived in Edinburgh at midnight and slept on a bench until the queue had opened. 
According to the Daily Telegraph, mourners in London may have to wait for 30 hours to see the Queen's coffin lying in state, with the queue likely to stretch more than three miles from Tower Bridge to Westminster. Writing in the Mail, columnist uh, Peter Hitchens argues the coffin should travel from Edinburgh to London by the Royal Train instead of being flown. He argues a train journey would give many hundreds of thousands of people an opportunity to line the route to pay their respects. An article in the day, uh, in the Telegraph says a train carriage has been modified to carry the coffin to London, but the plan was abandoned at the last minute. The paper says uh, there were fears that the route would become a magnet for protesters or, or reckless behaviour that would be too difficult to police. The I newspaper has been looking at which uh, world leaders will attend the funeral on Monday. President uh, Brazil's President Jair uh, Bolsonaro and Spain's King Felipe um, are among the latest to confirm their arrival. President Biden and the head of the European uh, Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, will also attend. But India's Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping um, have yet to say whether they will. The director of the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, Professor Philip Murphy, tells The Times that the uh, that after the Queen's uh, death, a number of countries could decide to leave the organisation or replace the British monarch as their head of state. He says this is being fuelled by the Black Lives Matter movement, the Windrush scandal and the growing momentum behind the move for reparations uh, for slavery and colonialism. A report in the Mirror says a hundred uh, food and drink brands such as Heinz Ketchup and Twining's Tea must now stop using the royal coat of arms and the word uh, words by appointment or to Her Majesty the Queen. The paper says the brands have to reapply to King Charles and prove that his royal household regularly uses them. And the Financial Times says the new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has told civil servants at the Treasury that they now need to focus entirely on economic growth. With the aim to boost uh, annual economic growth, the paper says a mood among Treasury staff is grim after Mr Kwarteng uh, sacked Tom Scholar, the popular and highly experienced permanent secretary. Both the FT and The Guardian say Mr Kortang is expected to announce his emergency budget on Thursday to, or Thursday or Friday next week. So, I mean, Osman, like we can see, um, the we've gone through the headlines and, and most of them, if not all, just I think just one of them was, was a little bit different. But all of them uh, were speaking about the, the Queen's uh, death, of course, um, speaking about the vigil, uh, Prince Charles as well. Uh, but going into the newspapers, uh, these are the things that we've just uh, mentioned uh, right now as well. I mean, what's your take uh, uh, on the news uh, today? Yeah, of course, it's a very, very um, expected topic, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the Queen's passing, passing very sad for many, if not all. Um, and I think it will be the same, for, you know, for the coming week until uh, the funeral. And uh, um, I don't think we'll see um, much different news um, other than the Queen's funeral and um, related 
to these topics. Yeah, of course. I mean, it is, uh, 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 of course, a very uh, hot topic, uh, and quite rightfully, um, like we mentioned in the tributes and like we mentioned from the headlines as well, um, seven decades of uh, of service and uh, what a wonderful reign um in which uh, even his holiness um in the, the the gathering that we just had on the over the weekend as well in the final session in the concluding session even he um uh, touched on this as well that uh, during her reign we we were able to um uh, have a, a, a religious freedom isn't it um and during this reign of religious freedom um i mean this is this is actually such a blessing in which uh, we may not have this in some other countries um not to name any but there there are countries in which we are not even able to say salam to one another to say greetings of peace um something that we do in the beginning of every show here um even in the beginning of today's show we started by saying assalamu alaikum that may the peace and blessings of allah be upon you um uh, but this is something that we cannot uh, do in in some other countries and that's why this religious freedom that we have been given in this country um uh, due to the monarch due to the queen um was an irreplaceable thing and and of course we will forever be grateful for this mm-hmm. not just a uh, religious freedom i think freedom in general it's uh, one of the I would say most most uh, freedom friendly country mm-hmm. not just uh, religious it's a freedom of speech freedom of uh, expression uh, all these things uh, we had the we had the opportunity to you know have this in the reign of um, the previous queen yeah yeah no no definitely um in other news uh, just going through i think maybe one or two um um uh, other news articles before moving on to our first segment uh the ukraine war so uh there's a headline which says we've retaken 6000 square kilometers from russia says zelensky ukrainian forces uh, have seized even more territory from russia as they continue their counter offensive the uh, country's uh, president has said uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky said uh, troops have now retaken more than 6,000 square kilometers, um, which um, um, is 2,317 square uh, miles um, for the benefit of our listeners um, in countries uh, like over here, in which we use miles rather than kilometers, um, from Russian control in September in the east and the south. The BBC cannot verif- verify these figures. Um, Russia has admitted losing key cities in the northeastern Kharkiv region in uh, in what it seems uh, what is seen by some military experts as a potential breakthrough in the war. Moscow uh, describes its uh, troop withdrawal from the region in recent days as a regrouping, quote unquote, with the aim of focusing on the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk uh, regions in Ukraine's east. The, that claim has been ridiculed even in Russia, with many social media users there describing the stated pullout as shameful. Speaking later on Monday, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken said Ukrainian forces had made significant progress in their counteroffensive, but uh, added that it was too early to predict the outcome. The uh, Russians maintain very significant forces in Ukraine as well as equipment and arms and munitions. They continue 
to use it indiscriminately um, against not just the Ukrainian armed forces, but civilians and civilian infrastructure, as we've (coughs) seen, Mr. Blinken has said. Uh, Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin ordered a full-scale invasion of Ukraine on 24th of February. Um, uh, many of our listeners will be uh, will uh, well remember that. Um, and Russia still holds about a fifth of the country. Um, in his late video um, address on Monday, President Zelensky said, uh, quote-unquote, From the beginning of September until today, our warriors have also liberated more than 6,000 square kilometers off the territory of Ukraine in the east and south. Um, He added that the movement of our troops continues. Um, The counteroffensive appears uh, to have been rapid. Last Thursday, President Zelensky said Ukrainian forces had retaken 1,000 square kilometers. But by Sunday, that stated uh, figure had tripled to 3,000 square kilometers. Mr. Zelensky thanked uh, several of uh, Ukraine's brigades uh, involved in the counteroffensive, describing their fighters as true heroes, quote-unquote. He did not reveal which Ukrainian cities and villages had been liberated, um, but uh, as we can see, the uh, Russia says its forces have been carrying out strikes in those areas retaken by Ukraine in recent days. Um, and if you go onto the BBC website, you can see the Ukrainian uh, gains in uh, uh, Kharkiv uh, counter-offensive. Um, you can see the military control, the Russian advances, um, where it's uh, they've been uh, held or regained by Ukraine and uh, Russia annexed uh, um, uh, Crimea in 2014. Um, a whole uh, uh, map which shows that as well. Um, uh, Osman, is there any other uh, uh, news articles which have uh, caught your eye this morning? Um, yes, we do have uh, <clears throat> another article uh, from The Economist. Um, and the title says that religious students begging in Nigeria is a dynasty of indigents being promoted. So uh, the story is that young religious students of Nigeria are being forced to stand in streets with begging bowls so that they can accumulate enough money for their food and religious education fees. They are not being provided with formal education and so uh, and so form a part of estimated 13 million unschooled children in Nigeria. In fact, when they are around the age of five, they... Uh, they are handed over to religious clerics so that they can be trained in the memorization of the Holy Quran. In this segment, we'll be uh, delivering deeper, we'll be uh, delving deeper into the plight of Nigeria and ways uh, its educational uh, policies can be ameliorated to enable more children to gain formal education. Mm-hmm. So this is the uh, first uh, main article for the day. So if you would like to get involved and if you would like to to speak uh, about this, then of course you can do so as well. The number for you as always is 0208-687-7878. And uh, of course you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page as well at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so like Usman, you just mentioned as well, so re- religious students begging in Nigeria um, is it a, a dynasty of indigen, uh, uh, indigents being promoted? 
is the question over here today. Um, well, 13 million children in Nigeria are unschooled. A very large contributing factor to this is the number of children who do not receive formal education as a result of being taught by religious teachers instead. Um, and these children um, are known as Al-Majirai. And uh, they are handed to travelling teachers at a young age. And uh, from then on, their childhood consists of two main things, studying religious knowledge or begging on the streets. The children's lack of education limits their future possibilities. And many of these children end up unemployed in their adult life. So, Osman, I mean, what does uh, Islam teach us um, about the the acquisition of knowledge or being informed and the difference of being informed and uninformed? What are a few of the things that Islam uh, teaches, whether it's through the Holy Quran or whether it's maybe through the traditions of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him? Um, yeah, knowledge is, is uh, um, you know, as you say, knowledge is power. So Islam has a great emphasis on knowledge. Uh, the reason being that knowledge is, uh, you can say knowledge is everything in your life. If you don't have knowledge, you, like, you wouldn't know how to live. So Islam, uh, uh, in the Holy Quran, in uh, chapter number 20, the, uh, Allah the Almighty states, that exalted, exalted then is Allah, the true king. And be not impatient for the Quran, uh, its revelation is completed unto thee. But only say, O my Lord, increase me in knowledge. So this is a prayer from the Holy Quran, which is uh, a very you know simple prayer that, O my Lord, increase me in knowledge. But it shows the importance of knowledge and um, how, how, how important it is for not just... Uh, you know, um, children to learn it as as you grow older, your whole life, you you need to be seeking knowledge, need to be improving, need to be uh, gaining more knowledge. Otherwise, you'll be you know outdated. Mm. So uh, in this regard, there's a there's a hadith of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, he is recorded to have said that the word of wisdom is the lost property of a Muslim, so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. So not only is it important to uh, gain knowledge from the Islamic perspective, rather it is like it is like your own property. It is it is your right. It's your it's your um, you know uh, like something which is necessary for you. <clears throat> in another place in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty also states that say are those who know equal to those who know not. So this verse also clearly highlights the elevated status of education and those who gain knowledge in the eyes of Allah the Almighty. <clears throat> I mean, as we can see, the, uh, Islam has uh, has laid down a lot of emphasis when it comes to the acquisition of knowledge, isn't it? And and this is something which is um, it's incumbent; it is obligatory for every um, uh, Muslim, male and female. Um, there is no distinction in this. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, he's also recorded to have said that the word of wisdom is a lost property of a Muslim, so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. Like like you mentioned as well. I mean, this is mm -hmm. this is such that, uh, exactly like you were saying as well, that wherever we find 
um, a, a piece of knowledge, then this is something that we need to jump, jump to um, and grasp and grab it with both of our hands because this is, this is not something which we can let go of. Um, like you mentioned, it's so essential for us to always be informed and always um, be in the know about of, uh, of whatever is happening around us. Um, and this is exactly what these references from the Holy Quran or from the sayings and traditions of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, elucidate over here. And this is something which we always need to keep in mind, um, regardless of whether or not um, the we, we see something from a believer, a disbeliever. It can be uh, an atheist, it can be a, uh, a hypocrite, it can be anyone. Uh, but if we f- see that there is some piece of knowledge um, that someone is, uh, is, is, let's say, embarking or whatever, then this is something that we need to, to like I said earlier, we need to grab uh, and take a hold of. Because like uh, we can see from this last narration that we just read out, that uh, uh, wisdom uh, or, or the word of wisdom is the lost property of a Muslim. So that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. Um, coming back to the uh, main discussion um, over here of this topic, um, it's essential for us to also understand the economic and politi- political conditions in Nigeria as well. So, I mean, Usman, w- w- what's it like over there uh, when it comes to the economic and political conditions in Nigeria? Well, the uh, economic situation in Nigeria, <coughs> sorry, uh, the economic situation in Nigeria has been worsening over the past several years. So inflation is at almost 20% at the moment, and the situation seems to be growing even like ever worse. The pandemic is a factor to blame for this. However, politics has also surely played its part and the current situation is leading to social unrest within Nigeria. Mm. Um, and I mean, the, obviously the next uh, question automatically comes is that how can the prospect of education for children be improved in Nigeria? So in order to improve the prospect of education for children in Nigeria, the systematic uh, this is uh, systematic barriers within the country need to be addressed first, um, uh, as listed um, uh, by the UNICEF website. Economic barriers and social, socio-cultural norms and practices that discourage attendee attendance in formal education, especially for girls. These are just a few examples. Um, uh, as listed by the UNICEF website. On another occasion, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Seek knowledge, though it may be found in a country as far away as China. And remember, this is uh, a saying, or this is a narration, or a tradition from over 1400 years ago now. This is not something which uh, someone just mentioned or someone just said, um, in this decade or in this century even. But uh, rather, this is something which was mentioned over 1400 years ago. And just think about the the mode of transport at that time, that if, if someone was to travel from the Saudi Arabia all the way up to China, I mean, this is something which uh, not not weeks or even months, this could, this could uh, take even years. 
Um, I mean, there's no um, um, there, there's no planes or anything uh, of that sort. This this would be a a an extremely lengthy journey. Uh, but despite this, and and despite knowing this, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that if you are in the pursuit of knowledge, and if if this is something that you're after, and this is something that you are trying to acquire, then uh, uh, even if you have to go all the way to China. Which was, uh, of course, seemed as a a, a very developed um, a country at that time, a developed uh, nation, um, and it still is. Uh, not taking anything away from it, um, uh, but uh, it was at that time that the Holy Prophet ﷺ, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that go all the way to China and travel there, if uh, uh, if you are in the pursuit of knowledge. And this, of course, is uh, one tradition um, which I think many of our listeners will be well aware of now as well. Uh, this is something which we often repeat here because uh, as Muslims, we it is our duty. And this is actually brings me to another narration of the Holy Prophet as well, where he said that seeking of knowledge is obligatory upon every Muslim man and woman. Like we mentioned earlier as well, this is something that uh, um, uh, is extremely important, uh, and it's not just something that we should do if we if we feel like it. Uh, but this is rather something which is obligatory upon us, just like uh, um, it is obligatory upon us to to um, to go through all of the commandments of the Holy Quran. This is, of course, yet another one of those. Um, and uh, and similarly, we should be giving it its due respect um, and trying to acquire knowledge uh, wherever possible as well. Um, this leads me to an actual uh, an audio clip, or just uh, just a short one. Um, we'll be listening to the, to an, a question answer session with the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mr. Tahir Ahmad. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Where he answers the question, what should be the ideal education for Muslim children? He further em- emphasizes his opposition of Muslim exclusive schools as they don't serve much purpose. So my question is, uh, in your opinion, what should be the ideal uh, education for The ideal education Muslims. for a Muslim should be to go to all the schools and carry their character, the stamp of their faith and their, their the conduct with them as a passport to every school because only then they can mix with others with advantage. The only purpose of uh, creating such schools is to give the Muslim students an advantage over a society which draws them to non-Islamic values. If this is not the purpose then it is purposeless. But these schools cannot serve this cause anyway. Because after they finish the schools, do they go to some Muslim universities here? Which Muslim Oxford or Cambridge University will they go? It's all a meaning exercise of propaganda value, nothing more than that. And if you create rigid people in that school with orthodoxy, orthodoxy being their, their, their training philosophy, then you will further do damage to Islam because the damage of Islam already is tarnished enough in the name of orthodoxy, non-tolerance and this and that. And which views will you impart upon them, impart to them in the name of Islam? What sort of war will you present to them? What type of prophet will you present? The man with the sword or a man with love on his lips and sacrifice in his conduct? 
just the name doesn't mean anything. That is why I oppose the creations of Muslim school, Ahmadi school, this school. This is nonsense. It is the responsibility of the parents to teach them Islam at the, at the level. And there could be some additional schools for teaching Islam according to the brand of Islam to which they belong. There should be no fraud played in the name of Islam upon Muslim children. The authorities which run such schools should be brave and honest enough to say, here we teach Wahhabiyat, the official faith of the, of the uh, of Saudians. And if anybody is interested in that, come to us. Somebody should say, here we, we teach Shiaism of the Asnashari, the twelve Imam people. And uh, if you are interested, come. But that should be an additional, like night classes. So that the secular education, which is essential for all the people of the world today, goes on uninterrupted. So whatever additional religious education they want to impart to the people, to their own, people of their own faith, why should we have any objection to that? Let them do it. But do it honestly and openly and wisely. Not like this, you know. I'm sorry to criticize your school, but this is how I feel. I'm generally convinced that it's useless and meaningless. And also it doesn't tell everything about itself. This was um, an audio clip from uh, His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazim Zatahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul, uh, where he was answering the question of what should be the ideal education for Muslim children. And of course, uh, as we heard from there as well, he was further emphasizing his opposition of Muslim exclusive schools as they don't serve much purpose. And instead, he was saying that they, if there are such schools, then uh, they, they should they should uh, be very open about it and they should be uh, um, uh, transparent as well. And they should say that, oh, this is a school for Wahhabis or this is a school where we will um, speak about Shiaism or Sunniism or Wahhabism or, or any um, any one of any one of the, de- the denominations or the sects within Islam, um, uh, and focus uh, on that uh, that sect as well. So this is um, if you do want to have schools or exclusive schools, then the, the children should be well aware of uh, of uh, what the administration is trying to teach. And of course, according to that, if they want to uh, partake in that, then they should. Uh, if they don't uh, want to, then of course, there shouldn't be any coercion. There shouldn't be any force when it comes to that. Um, we'll be speaking a little bit more about the, the, the why it's so important and, and why it's absolutely imperative um, that we um, go in the pursuit of, of knowledge and the acquisition of uh, knowledge as well. But before doing so, um, Osman, what are some of the steps that can be taken to prevent begging and enable more students to actually attend school? Because obviously over here, the problem that we're seeing is um, there's, I mean, 13 million children in Nigeria are unschooled, like we mentioned earlier. Um, and many of, uh, uh, of, the, of, the, of the children of the schools um, around the age of five, they're handed over to religious clerics um, so that they can be trained in the memorization of the Holy Quran. And this is just done out of not because of uh, they want to acquire knowledge or they want their children to to memorize the holy quran or be, or or become muslim clerics or anything of that sort but rather it's just because they they can't really afford 
to look after their children, isn't it? So they just hand them over to the clerics and and just let them do uh, whatever they 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 want to with them, which is of course wrong as well because uh, even the the clerics they might not have the proper funding to to look after them, and that's why half of them go on to actually uh, memorize the Holy Quran, but half of them actually go out to the streets and start begging. Um, and and actually, we'll touch on begging as well um, because th- that's a, that's an important topic to address over here as well. Uh, but yeah, like I was saying, uh, what are some of the steps that can be taken to actually prevent begging um, and enable more students to actually attend school? Um, yeah, so it is difficult to give the children an opportunity at receiving formal education, as this tradition is considered an honored way of living dating back centuries. Uh, the government in- invested 15 billion naira, which is about 35 million dollars, in 2014 into building 157 schools that would give the children a chance at receiving education. With more children in schools during the day, there would be fewer begging on the streets. However, a lack of cooperation by the religious teachers in charge of schools has led to this project having little impact on the situation. And also the COVID-19 pandemic meant that the Al-Majirai, which is a system of Islamic education practice in northern Nigeria, were sent home if they could uh, remember where they came from. Since the lockdown has been lifted, most of the children are begging on the streets once again. So the situation here is not looking well when about, you know, 13 million children, which is... The population of Nigeria is, I think, about 200 million or just above that. So this is roughly like 15% of the population doesn't have access to education. Yeah. And like I said, education is something which which is not just, you know, maths and physics, which is, it's a, it's a, it's your lifestyle, it's your manners, it's your, includes everything. So Mm. if such a great number of uh, people are being deprived of this, um, like basic right, I would say, for of education and mm. knowledge then the country's future will be affected by this so this if they want to you know mm. fix this country they need to start uh, investing in their youth in investing in the children and uh, like his holiness uh, the fourth khalifa may Allah have mercy on him mentioned that the children should be taught the the basics the morals the religious stuff that can come later when when they have uh, developed an understanding but if a five-year-old is going, uh, is he's being forced to go to some cleric and learn about something he has no understanding of right now. Yeah. I mean, he's he's barely started speaking. Mm. So that is something which I think is like enforcing something on him. He yeah. has he doesn't understand yet that what what the significance of this is. So he's he's uh, instead of focusing on his, um, you know, in his um, uh, moral and uh, his attitude, his uh, manners, his you know the basic things which every uh, in every human uh, instead of that they, they're teaching them the holy quran and uh, even though we as muslims um, would promote this but mm. the way this is being done is not appropriate so it should be done with um, like his holiness uh, said that it should be done with the uh, first of all they should um, like pronounce it very very clearly what they're going to teach what it is yeah. what their school is offering and then people will choose to come there or uh, or not or go another way mm. most certainly and i mean it's uh, when it comes to begging as well as there there's a tradition of the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him 
in which he said that the upper hand is better than the lower hand. Um, and uh, what he meant by this is that if you if if you were to give something, if you if you just um, uh, act it out in your head, uh, um, then you'll see that if you're giving something, then your hand is the upper hand, and if you're receiving something, then of course your hand is the lower hand, isn't it? So over here, from this tra- tradition of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he is telling us that it is uh, far better to be on the giving end. Um, in which, uh, w- w- and what that means is you should give charity and things of that sort and help others and assist others. And this is actually a fundamental duty that we have, uh, which we mention on every show here on the Voice of Islam uh, radio station of Hakuk al Ibad, the rights that we owe to mankind, the ra- rights that we owe to, to the creation of God Almighty. Um, uh, and this is better, far better than being on the receiving end. If you are in a, in a position in which you have no other option, then this is okay. Uh, I mean, this is not something which is, it is discouraged, but it isn't something which is haram. Um, and so the, if you are in a extremely desperate state and you, there's nothing else which can be done, then I guess you you can be on the receiving end. Uh, um, uh, but of course, you should try your level best to get out of this situation um, and be in a position in which you can fend for yourself um, and look out for yourself as well. And this is something which uh, which is absolutely necessary, especially according to the teachings of Islam. Yeah, it might sound a little bit harsh, uh, mm. you know, speaking uh, in that way about begging. But no. at the same time, we need to know that Islam has, uh, on the other hand, also put as much importance in helping the needy and the poor people. Of course. So in in uh, the Holy Quran, it is also mentioned that Allah Taala states that when you should look out for the beggars, you know, you should. Some are very clear, you know, mm. they sit on the streets and you can see them. Yeah. But there are certain beggars. They they are. They are poor, but they don't want to show it. Yeah. Okay. So it's very hard to find those people, mm. those people who are truly needy, but they are ashamed of asking, or they are they they don't want to be portray them, uh, you know, sit on the streets or portray themselves as someone poor. And uh, so finding Islam instructs us to even find those people who have uh, need, and they don't want to show it. And this is this is a task which is, you know, very very difficult. Yeah, no, so, no, definitely. Yeah, so Islam has put the same amount of importance on helping those needy as much as it has discouraged begging because begging is something you keep taking, you keep taking. If, uh, you know, like you said, if sometimes someone is in, in such a situation yeah. where he's, he, he can't afford it, so that's that should be when, uh, you know, he goes to beg. But uh, begging is not helping anyone. Mm. So that's why you should try to um, get out of this. And uh, that's why Islam says that you should help the needy and those who, who show it and those who don't. Yeah. Um, so they can, you know, get out of this situation. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it's it's coined in the Islamic terminology of uh, of miskeen, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is something that we we always need to look, look out for. And this is actually a distinction that Islam has from any other um, uh, religion or even world organization in which uh, you, you'll other religions or other faiths or, or, or other groups um, will say that you need to look out for the poor and look out for the needy. 
um, but they will never go to such extents in which uh, they will also go to this level of uh, to, of miskeen, which we which we, you just re- uh, were referring to. That those individuals who are poor, but they but they 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 just stay in there in seclusion or whatever, and they don't go out and beg for 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 things. Um, and this is the distinction, and this is something which uh, Islam has given us as an extra uh, opportunity to serve. So this is this is something that we should always keep in mind as well. And this brings us to an end for this first hour. Um, once we do come back, we're going to be speaking about two very interesting topics as well. So don't go anywhere and join us after the break. Here's the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the thirteenth of September, um, and you are listening to myself, Samar and Osman. Um, the second topic for the day, uh, we're going to be speaking about successful obliteration of lethal brain tumors, exploring the development of a new method. Um, of course, uh, there's been a bit, a, bit, uh, a new study which highlights that uh, glioblastoma, um, which is a fatal kind of brain cancer, has been successfully annihilated. Uh, by the grace of Allah, the Almighty, such an outcome was accomplished through the development of a new method consisting of two integral uh, mechanisms in the brain. In this segment, uh, of course, we'll be unraveling the this enigmatic uh, organ of the human body and understanding what such a groundbreaking discovery means for the future as well. So we'll be going through uh, the article, we'll be speaking about some of the symptoms and causes of brain tumours, we'll be speaking about um, what uh, uh, brain tumors can cause problems by which uh, things uh, some of the other methods and techniques uh, which are currently being used to treat brain tumors um, and of course um, can it be prevented along with other things um, during this segment as well but before getting into all of that um, we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show, Dr. Paul uh, Brennan, um, who is a reader and honorary consultant uh, neurosurgeon at the University of Edinburgh um, and NHS Lothian. Um, he is a part of the CRUK Adult Brain Tumor Center of Excellence and Tessa Jowell uh, Brain Tumor Center of uh, Excellence based in Edinburgh. Dr. Brennan's research spans the laboratory and the clinic, combining molecular uh, epidemiology and clinical investigation to guide rationale invest, uh, innovation to improve patient care. He applies this, uh, this strategy to improving diagnosis, treatment and outcomes for people with brain tumours and traumatic brain or spinal injuries. Um, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for, for being with us. Um, the first question that we wanted to ask you, uh, just getting straight into it, uh, really, is what is a glioblastoma and how is it caused? So a glioblastoma is the most common of the more aggressive brain tumours. I mean, all brain tumours are not common. So they affect three to four people per 100,000. So most most of us will never meet someone in our, our day-to-day lives who actually has a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. But for the people who have them, they are aggressive tumours. They have one of the shortest survivals from diagnosis of all cancers. And the glioblastoma is the most aggressive amongst those. And we don't know what causes them. Um, We know for lots of different cancers that there are contributing factors, whether 
it's smoking contributing to lung cancer or um, alcohol contributing to liver disease or some infections contributing to various different cancers. But for brain cancer, we really don't have an idea. And I think that partly reflects the fact that they're so rare and so they've not been as well researched as some other cancers. But also a lot of the research that has been done just hasn't found anything. We don't, we haven't, you know, found a smoking gun that explains why these, why these cancers occur. Mm-hmm. And is that the case for all uh, brain cancers, uh, brain-related cancers, or just for glioblastoma? So the, the glioblastoma belongs to a group of brain tumors called gliomas. So mm-hmm. in the brain, we have nerve cells, which we're all familiar with, sort of do the, do the hard work. But we also have lots of supporting cells, which feed and help look after those nerve cells. Yeah. And they're called glial cells. So there's a big group of tumors that come from glial cells called gliomas. So those ones we really don't know where they come from. There's a, there's a very small number of people or proportion of people who, who have inherited conditions that develop these things, but they're mm-hmm. vanishingly rare. Oh, but okay. some of the other tumors we do know a bit more about. I mean, a lot of the tumors we see in the brain come from elsewhere in the body. So people who do have breast cancer or bowel cancer or lung cancer, sometimes those tumors spread to the brain. So I guess we know a bit more about those. And then there's a, another group of tumors which aren't usually aggressive called meningiomas. And... Most of those seem to arise by chance, but some of them can arise in people who've had radiotherapy and treatment to their heads before. So amongst, amongst the spectrum of tumours, we've got little insights into what causes them, but on the whole, we, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Brennan. Um, I've heard so many times um, that there are um, cancers which are a late discovery. And because of that, yep. many people, you know, uh, they don't get the treatment in time. So how can brain tumors be diagnosed? And uh, is there like a fast process of diagnosing them? So brain tumors are particularly difficult to diagnose quickly. Um, every year or every couple of years, um, there's a report out about the time it takes people to get a diagnosis for their cancer. And, and usually brain cancers are amongst the slowest. And, and the reason is because the symptoms are what we say non-specific so the first things people mm-hmm. experience are things like headache or a change in their memory or personality and it's much more likely that that's not that's got another cause which is nothing to do with cancer and often the patient and often the gp they're seeing don't think that this could be a cancer because these things are so rare and unfortunately it takes sometimes weeks even months for people to realize um, so I think that whole process of diagnosis that is, is dependent on symptoms is really difficult. One thing that many researchers around the world, including us in Edinburgh, are working on are blood tests to um, help diagnose cancer. And the idea we have is that if you went to your doctor with some symptoms which were not that concerning, um, but maybe mm-hmm. the doctor thought on balance um, this would, um, that, you know, we should do some more investigations. They don't. They, if they have to go straight for an MRI scan, that's difficult that's expensive it's hard to get access to whereas if they could do a blood test and so we've been developing that we've been trying it in the clinic then for the last few years and that's looking very promising and there's other people working on similar tests so i can see a time in the next few years when rather than it being a question of oh we should do a scan or not it would be well let's do a blood test let's see if the blood test thinks you've got a tumor and then we can decide whether to do a scan um so i think that will make a big difference the other thing that we've been trying um for doctors is something uh, like a little test of the way your brain functions. So we ask people to um, do this test in the clinic. It just takes a minute. And the, the, your performance on that test, along with your symptoms, along with the blood test, all these things would help the doctor decide whether you should get a scan right now, you know, in the next couple of days, or whether mm-hmm. actually we just watch you for a couple of days. So I think that's very promising. Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, that that would be uh, amazing, isn't it, to see that uh, if if you can 
diagnose uh, that with just these, let's say, two or three pieces of information rather than uh, having to go through a, a, a scan. So, so yeah, like you said, very promising indeed. Um, Dr. Brennan, uh, one of the aspects of your research focuses on developing a palladium-activated product, uh, prodrug where the palladium catalyst is to be implanted in the brain during surgery. Could you briefly shed a bit more light on this, explaining the purpose of this catalyst and how it helps manage brain tumours as well, please? Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh a technology that was developed by a colleague in Edinburgh called uh, Professor Azia Onchiti mm-hmm. Bucetta. So the idea is a lot of um, a lot of what we do to treat cancers actually harms people. So, I mean, surgery can be harmful, radiotherapy can be harmful, and certainly mm-hmm. the drugs that we give people can be harmful. And sometimes what happens is you've got a drug that you think could work against a tumor. It might not cure it, but it could certainly control it. But the, the patient gets side effects. And so we were looking for a strategy to try and stop people getting side effects and one way to do that would be to just give the drug to the tumor so what we do at the moment is we inject it into veins or we give it um, people to take as tablets and then that drug has to go around the whole body to get to the brain and that's where a lot of the side effects come from and it sort of limits how effective some of your treatments can be so we want to try and put the drug straight in the brain so at the time of surgery you've taken out as much tumor as you think you safely can then we can put these little um wafers in the brain but we don't want to put the drug in the brain because if you put Mm -hmm. the drug in the brain at the time of surgery then um, it can start to leak out it can affect the wound healing and it can cause complications and we've seen that with some other strategies people have developed in the past so what what this technology does is you still give the drug into a vein but the drug doesn't do anything in your body until it gets to the brain because we put as you say this palladium catalyst so it's the two things Mm -hmm. together which make the drug active And so it's about targeting the drug exactly to where it's needed in the brain and also means that you can give it again and again. So that palladium just sits there. I mean, people have palladium and other implants in their body, some some dental implants, some orthopedic implants. So this is something that can be very safe and it could just sit there in your brain. You give the drug, it goes, it's, it's inert, it's inactive until it gets to the brain, bang, treats the cancer. And then you wait and give the drug, you give that sort of pro drug again. So it's very exciting. Um, it's very difficult to get these sorts of things developed to get them towards a clinic. Um, we're making steady progress. Um, I don't know. I don't know the timeline for that. Um, but I, I hope if we can, get, you, you know, everyone has these hurdles in drug development. If we can overcome those hurdles, and hopefully that's something that we can be trying in the clinic in the next few years. Thank you. And uh, uh, one last question: What are the current treatments, if any, for um, glioma cell invasion? And what is the prospect of like new drugs? being designed for treating brain tumors yeah so you've hit upon the big problem when the if if the tumors didn't invade into the brain they, then we might be able to do more with surgery and with the other treatments but the problem is that the cells go right in amongst the nerves so we can take out the big lump in the middle which is you know 99 percent tumor but mm-hmm. by the time you get to the edges it's sort of brain mixed in with tumor and that's where a lot of the harm from surgery can come from and that's really what we've you know, that's where the tumor comes back from and that's what we struggle to treat. So at the moment, people do best if they can get some surgery and some radiotherapy and um, a drug called temozolomide, which is a sort of very old um, drug invented in the 60s, I think, but it's the best one we have for brain cancer at the moment. But but that reflects, you know, the treatment hasn't really changed that much in the 20 years uh, for brain cancer. Whereas when you look at, for glioblastoma, when you look at... um, you know, many other cancers, there's treatments coming on all the time. And people are developing treatments. You know, they are trying new drugs. There's lots of clinical trials going on. Um, 
in the UK, but certainly all over the world. But things just are not working. And a, a lot of the research that ourselves and others are doing is to try and work out partly we want to find new drugs, but also we want to understand why the drugs we've got don't work. So um, some of it's to do with the brain because it, it, it's innately protected from a lot of the toxins we have in our body. That's how it works. But I think there's other fun, fundamental things that we don't really understand about the tumor itself, about the biology. And the more we understand about that, I think the better treatments we can get. So we're due a treatment, we're due a blockbuster drug like all the other cancers. It's going to really impact on outcome for patients with glioblastoma, but it's not it's not here yet. So um, hopefully, hopefully that's on its way. Yeah, I mean, uh, with time, of course, we'll uh, um, with the development of uh, of, uh, of of our own research and of technology and everything. Of course, uh, we will get to that stage at uh, some point or another. Uh, it's just about uh, do, do, conducting more and more research, uh, and and God willing, we will get there, um, which will of course be beneficial for 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 mankind as a whole. So uh, thank you um, for that, uh, and we hope you have a, a wonderful day ahead as well. It was an ex- uh, excellent right. speaking with you. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Dr. Paul Brennan, uh, who is a, a reader and honorary consultant neurosurgeon at the University of Edinburgh and NHS uh, Lothian. Uh, he is a part of the CRUK Adult Brain Tumor Centre of Excellence and uh, Tessa Jowell uh, Brain Tumor Centre of Excellence based in Edinburgh. Um, his research spans the laboratory and the clinic, combining molecular ep- ep- epidemiology and clinical investigation to guide rationale innovation to improve patient care. Uh, he applies this strategy to improving diagnosis, treatment and outcomes for people with brain tumours and traumatic brain or spinal injuries. Um, some very interesting things that we saw there, isn't it, uh, Osman, in which we can see the development of uh, of this uh, 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 of um, of of research when it comes to um, diagnosing as well, uh, and of course treatment as well, and these these are all uh, very important things. And of course, with time, uh, we'll see God willing that we'll be able to progress even further. And uh, the diagnosis will will be able to happen in a quicker manner, like you were saying, rather than going through the MRI mm-hmm. uh, MRI checks. Maybe it can be done with uh, the, the 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 questionnaire that he was addressing about, along with the symptoms and along with uh, a blood test as well. So very promising things indeed. And um, we're going to be going straight to our next guest. We do have with us on the line Dr. Karen Noble. Um, Dr. Karen Noble is the director of research, policy, and innovation of the Brain Tumor Research Team. Um, she has uh, 20 years uh, of grants and research management experience combined with an impressive track record of delivery gained from her time working in the life sciences sector. Uh, she has held senior management roles at the Wellcome Trust with the NHS Cancer Programme and at Cancer Research UK. Whilst at Cancer Research UK, in her role as head of Cancers uh, of Unmet Need, she transformed the support for brain cancers increasing the research spend two to three fold in three years um, and she's also lost her sister-in-law uh, to glioblastoma in 2011 as well um, Assalamualaikum peace be upon you and welcome <coughs> to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station Hello 
Hello. Hi. Good morning. It's lovely to join you. Uh, good morning, and it's lovely to have you on with us. Um, we're speaking about a very interesting uh, and important topic here on the Voice of Islam radio station. We wanted to get your uh, intake uh, to this as well. And just getting straight into the first question, um, what was the intention behind starting Brain Tumor Research and what is uh, its vision as well? Why, do you, why did you join this organization? Mm, yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you so much. So our chief executive, Sue Farrington-Smith, she was driven by the loss of her niece, Alison, to a brainstem glioma. That's called a DIPG. And that was just before Alison's eighth birthday. And as a result of that, Sue co-founded the charity Ali's Dream. And that was because she was so shocked to discover the lack of awareness and the chronic underfunding of research into brain tumours. So she led the coming together of multiple charities in 2009 to launch brain tumour research. And that was facilitated by fellow members such as the Diana Ford Trust. And that was with a vision to find a cure for brain tumours. And that vision still stands today. That is absolutely what drives our charity forward. So it's to find a cure for all types of brain tumours. And I think there's over 120 brain tumours, so there's a lot of them. And our mission is to increase the UK investment into brain tumour research. And that's because brain tumours kill more children and adults under the age of 40 than any other cancer. But historically, just 1% of the national spend on cancer research has been allocated to this devastating disease. And so brain tumour research is determined to change that. And that's one of the reasons why I've joined the charity and that's why I, I do the job that I do currently. As you rightly mentioned, sadly, I lost my sister-in-law to glioblastoma. Mm. She was only 47. She died within a year. And I know by joining this charity... And by working together with my colleagues and with the fundraisers and with our policy teams, that we can really make a difference and together we can be able to find a cure. Thank you, Dr. Noble. Um, brain tumours kill more children than any other type of cancer, as you said. Could you briefly shed some light on the pioneering research being conducted by the organisation? Yeah, no, of course. Great, thank you. So how Brain Tumour Research um, funds its research is we establish partnerships at key uh, universities in the UK and we create what we call brain tumour research centres of excellence. So we're investing in long-term research. We're building the critical mass of expertise needed to help accelerate that journey to find a cure. And as those teams' research progresses, they're then able to attract increased research investment from other sources, allowing game-changing collaborations to take shape. And the scientists at these dedicated research centres that I've just been talking about are working tirelessly to gain a deeper understanding of brain tumours to help us to get closer to that cure. So just to give you a few snippets of what we're funding, we have mm-hmm. three centres of excellence. One of those is at the University of Plymouth. And there we're funding the UK's leading specialist research centre for low-grade brain tumours. Now, low-grade brain tumours are usually quite slow-growing, but some do start to grow more rapidly, transforming them into what we call high-grade or malignant brain tumours. And all low-grade tumours, whilst despite sometimes being called benign, can actually cause quite long-term and life-changing challenges for patients. So by understanding those mechanisms of what causes a low-grade tumour to to become more high-grade, the researchers can explore ways to try and halt or slow those growth. 
Now, we also have a centre of excellence in, uh, we have two in London. One of those is at Queen Mary University of London over in Whitechapel. And they're studying glioblastoma brain tumours. And I'm sure you've probably heard today that's the most aggressive and most common primary high-grade tumour diagnosed in adults. Yeah. As, and at that centre, they're also exploring some rarer, primarily childhood tumours as well. And then finally, we have our third centre of excellence, our second one in London, and it's at Imperial College. So it's over in West London. And that combines the expertise of surgery as well as research. And that's, go- that's across two hospitals. That's Charing Cross and also Hammersmith. Now, at Charing Cross, the research being delivered there is led by a leading neurosurgeon. And under his team, his team is exploring ways to develop new tools, techniques and procedures to improve and optimise the complex science of neurosurgery. And the team at Imperial... So um, the more the research lab, they're looking at many aspects of brain tumour biology. So studying how tumour cells get their energy and can grow. And once we know that, we can try mm. and find some therapies to try and stop those tumours from continually growing. So I hope that gives you a flavour of the research that we're driving. Real yep. internationally leading research. Again, always at the end of the day, hoping to find that cure. Mm. Um, and 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 of course, uh, God willing, we'll we'll get to a point in which uh, not just for glioblastoma, but but all of the other cancers and all of these other problems that we see within our day to day lives, um, will will come to a point in which we'll be able to 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 quickly diagnose them, um, and quickly remedy and fix them uh, fully and completely as well. Uh, God willing. Um, another question that we had for you was why is it difficult? to treat glioblastoma and how will it be possible to actually find a cure for it? Yeah, no, and, and, and this is a question we often get asked. So I think that there's, there's a number of reasons why it's so difficult to treat glioblastoma. So surgical, remover of, surgical removal of this entire tumour is almost impossible. And in most cases, less than 90% of that tumour can be removed. And that's because it's often referred to as having sort of finger-like tentacles that extend Mm. some distance from the main tumour mass and so it spreads into the surrounding normal brain tissue and of course unlike tumours in other parts of the body where you can get a really good clear margin of the normal tissue surrounding the tumour it can which it can often be difficult to really identify that so for the surgeons trying to remove the glioblastoma it's really not it's not easy for them because they really need to balance you know, taking out the tumour, but without making any risk to the cognitive function of the, of the, of the brain or even just the patient's survival. So it's, it's, it's much harder in the brain. Mm. You're really sort of that balance between trying to take out all of the tumour, but trying to make sure you keep that cognition. And so, of course, in those situations, you're inevitably left with, um, you know, tumour, not just in the, tu- in, in the side, but also in other places as well. Other reasons are um, it's obviously surrounded by, we, we, we know about the blood-brain barrier. And so it's really tough to treat as many of the drugs can't efficiently enter the brain to act on that tumour because of that blood-brain barrier that limits the passage of molecules, at, you know, in particular chemotherapy drugs from the bloodstream into the brain. And, and, and so what we find is many of the drugs that we've helped develop in the laboratory they simply do not work effectively in the patients because of that barrier. Mm-hmm. You know, we do have a drug 
a chemotherapy drug that is used for brain tumour patients. And thankfully, that does cross the blood-brain barrier. And that's a real major reason for its clinical use in, for, this particular, for this particular cancer. So I hope that it helps. So I think in, in other parts of the body, you know, your tumour can grow bigger, but it has less of an impact than if your tumour is yeah. growing bigger in the brain because obviously you've got a restricted space in your skull. And so because of the physical location of the glioblastoma and being confined in the skull and surrounded by the vital brain tissue, it means that even small increases in the tumour size can really have serious effects on the cognitive function of the patient's survival. And that's why we really need to find that a therapy that can happen, that can work really quickly before the tumour grows too, big, too, too quickly. So I hope that helps explain. It's it's multifactorial. Blood-brain barrier, the position of it, the fact that the glioblastoma sort of seeps into the surrounding tissue. So it's not an easy surgical process. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think um, it's it's uh, we can prevent this? Like, or um, so instead of letting it come to this uh, stage where you have to treat it. How how difficult is it to prevent this situation? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of ways. And I, I, I caught the end of the conversation you were having before. There is mm-hmm. great progress being made in early detection and earlier diagnosis. So, you know, this is going to be more tricky for brain tumours, I think. There is already a blood test being uh, trialled, uh, a liquid biopsy test. So you yeah. take a small bit of blood from patients uh, and, and that's being able to pick up what they're proposing is they can identify 50 different cancers at the moment uh, brain tumors aren't included as part of that portfolio of 50 but we're hoping they're going to be able to make progress so i think the earlier you can pick up the signs of a brain tumor then hopefully you know surgery could be more successful also i was making reference to those low-grade brain tumors and our, our uk specialist center down in plymouth what they're trying to do there is identify how, how can you monitor those tumours and come up with therapies so that you can tackle that tumour before it becomes malignant. So I think there's lots of different uh, approaches and tools that by funding research, which is what brain tumour research does, hopefully we're better to understand more about those tumours. So what's driving those tumours to develop? How can we detect them earlier and how can we stop them tra- from transforming from low-grade tumours to high-grade tumours? It's a combination of just gaining that greater understanding. Once we understand how those tumours work, the biology, then we can get our researchers to start identifying either new treatments or repurposing. So that's where you use drugs that have been ide- identified for other diseases, particularly for those, um, you know, uh, diseases that are affecting the neuroscience system, so neurodegenerative diseases, are there drugs that have already been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier? Can we repurpose them for, uh, for brain tumours? So there's lots of exciting potential. It's about mm-hmm. finding the money, bringing the money in, and then allocating it to the researchers and giving them the opportunity to deliver on their world-leading research. Yeah, and how or how like what are some of the ways you think the public could get involved and you know help you in this research and funding? 
Yeah, no, thank you. So there's lots of opportunities. So obviously, as it, as it comes down to it, we're a fundraising charity so that we can direct the money that we raise to those centres of excellence that we fund. So fundraising is key. We have no income from the government. We rely entirely on funds raised by our supporters to help us in our mission to build that network of experts in sustainable research in the UK centres of excellence. So there's low limit to the ways that your viewers and your listeners <laughs> can help us raise funds. You know, they can run a marathon, they can jump from a plane, they can host a pub quiz, they can take part on, in one of our national fundraising campaigns. You know, there's loads of different ways, so please go to our website. We can help support you and steward you through. We've got a walk of hope coming up um, in a couple of weekends. Um, please, for your listeners, please join some of those. We've got one happening in Luton. We've got some happening across the UK. That's where people get together. They walk together in hope, in memory of others, and fundraise. Or they can campaign. We're also a campaigning charity. We work with parliamentarians, and that's key to raising awareness about brain tumours. We really treat it as an opportunity to influence cancer policy at the highest level. So we need advocates and we need campaigners. So again, please get in touch with us. Go to our website and you can find out more about how you can approach your local MP or you can send letters to, um, you know, to, to the new to the to the new prime minister, and of course volunteering yeah. as well. You know, we've got an amazing team of volunteers. They play a vital role in supporting our work, and without their time and their commitment. We just wouldn't be able to deliver the work that we do. So there's a flavour there of where, please reach out to us. We really want to work with you because together we can find a cure. Yeah, and 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 it's by working together and by doing all of these different things um, that we can maybe uh, raise money or raise awareness or all of these other things which are so essential uh, for the betterment of uh, of what we're seeing over here as well. So thank you for that, uh, Dr. Noble, um, and 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 we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. It was one, uh, wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Likewise. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Karen Noble, uh, who is the Director of Research, Policy and Innovation of the Brain Tumor Research Team. Uh, she has uh, 20 years of grants and research management experience combined with an impressive uh, track record of delivery gained from <coughs> her time working in the life sciences sector. She has uh, held senior management roles at the Wellcome Trust with the NHS Cancer Programme and at the uh, Cancer Research UK. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be going straight to our last guest for this segment. Uh, we do have with us on the line Professor uh, Tara Sp- uh, Spires-Jones, um, who is a uh, personal chair of uh, neurodegeneration and deputy director of the Centre for Discovery Brain Sciences at the University of Edinburgh and an expert in uh, synapse degeneration. She received a PhD from the University of Oxford before moving um, to uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, uh, becoming assistant professor in 2011, joining the University of Edinburgh in 2013. Uh, Tara is also a passionate about public engagement and science policy, advising the Scottish Government as part of the Scottish um, Science Advisory Council from 2016 to 2019. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And thank you for being with us. Um, We're speaking about a very interesting uh, topic over here today and just getting straight into the the questions. Um, The the first one that we wanted to ask you was, what causes neurodegenerative uh, diseases and is it possible to reverse uh, their onset? It's a great question. So there's a lot of things that can cause neurodegeneration. The one that is the most common neurodegenerative disease you've probably heard of is uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm. But the, the short answer is there, there are three big contributors to most of these diseases, genes, age, and environment. So age is the biggest risk factor for most neurodegenerative diseases. But some of us get an unlucky set of genes that can cause the diseases or increase our risk. And there are also some lifestyle factors that can contribute to your risk for neurodegenerative diseases like dementias and ALS and that type of thing. Thank you. And why do... Uh brain uh, synapses and neurons degenerate um, and is there a way to prevent them from deteriorating? Well, that's the million dollar question. Uh, So why do they degenerate depends on the underlying disease process. But um, in Alzheimer's disease, for example, you have a couple of different toxic proteins that clump up in the brain. And we found in our group and in other groups around the world that these two toxic proteins actually block or clump up inside individual synaptic connections. And the synapses are the thing that does the talking between the neurons, the brain cells that form our networks that allow us to think and learn and remember. So when these become dysfunctional, you start having problems with thinking, and eventually uh, the neurons themselves die as well. So the whole cell dies, not just the little connections where they talk. Mm -hmm. And really there are lots of different things that cause this death. And is it reversible is a great question. In animal models, yes, we can at least reverse the synapse degeneration once you lose the neurons, it's it's pretty much too late. It's hard to get those back and get them wired up correctly. But your brain is an amazingly plastic organ. It's it's incredible. So even if you've had some damage, if you can stop the damage, the network can recover by making new pathways and new connections between cells. So there is potential for at least a little bit of recovery of function, even if we can't get all the cells back. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the brain transformations that occur as a person ages? And and why uh, are those things like that as well? Yeah, other really good questions. And one of the one of the sort of fascinating and frustrating things is we don't know all the answers yet. The brain mm-hmm. is amazingly complex. Some of the things that change in our brains as we age is those little synaptic connections that we study. Those are lost in some parts of the brain, not all parts, but in some parts they're lost. You also get changes in your white matter, so you get changes. That's the, the part where the, all the wires are going through to connect the brain cells up together. Um, and a fun fact, it's white because the, the neurons processes, that, that these wires that go through the brain and down all the way down your spinal cord are actually insulated in fat. That's why the white matter is white, and that's to wow. conduct the electricity, just like we have insulation around our cables. But yes, yeah, so you get a little bit of loss of synapses. You get a little bit of brain shrinkage as we age. You get a little bit of... A damage in your white matter, generally speaking. So interestingly, some brain, some people's brains are more resilient than others. So some of us have lots of changes in our brains as we age, and some of us have very few. And we're trying to understand as scientists why some people's brains are so resilient so that we can hopefully help everyone's brain be resilient to the effects of age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully. And um, just uh, to uh, more elaborate on this uh, Alzheimer's disease, can you just... Explain this more and uh, what is the future prospect of a cure for such a devastating disease? Yeah, I mean, we are all working really hard towards this because as you probably know, so many people are affected, over 50 million people worldwide, and it costs a huge amount in 
resources and also, of course, in, in people's uh, sort of suffering and, and people's families for this disease. So what happens in Alzheimer's disease is you get in your brain, you get these clumps of plaques and tangles. Those are the two pathologies that build up. And as they build up and spread through the brain, the brain cells die and you get this loss of function. And there's lots of exciting research going on. We've made This was discovered over a century ago, but we've made recently over the past sort of 20 or 30 years quite a lot of progress in understanding how both of those toxic proteins affect the brain and some of the risk factors that are really important for developing the disease. So one tiny bit of good news is that if you look at the number of people per unit population, so the incidence of, of people getting dementia, although the, the total number of people is going up because our population is aging, but if you look at everyone's individual risk, it's actually gone down a little bit. And we think that's because people are taking better care of their hearts. So if you take good care of your cardiovascular system, you exercise, uh, and you eat well, you reduce your risk substantially. And we think about almost a third, at least a third of, of dementias could be prevented by changing our lifestyle factors. But that, of course, leaves two thirds of people who end up with dementia that couldn't have done anything about it, no matter what they've, you know, no matter how well they've lived. So we're really trying to understand how the genetic risk factors and the aging risk factors are, are changing the brain. And there are lots of different things in clinical trials now that I hope will be helpful to people in the future. We don't have any effective cures or preventative treatments yet. We have a few drugs that help people's symptoms. But I think in the next decade or so, I'm very hopeful that we'll have something that will actually help stop the progression of the disease. Mm, no, no, God willing. Um, and also, you mentioned that some things can maybe be altered or changed according to the, the lifestyle changes that we have. So uh, what are some of the, the lifetime, uh, lifestyle changes that we can make within our day-to-day lives to, to maybe prevent uh, uh, or, or stop some of these uh, diseases? Yeah, we can all reduce our own individual risk, but I want to be really clear and not try and blame people who end up having dementia because a lot of people can't can't prevent it. But for those of us who could, it's kind of common sense almost. It's things that your GP would tell you. So exercise is really good for your brain, um, eating well, not having too much alcohol, avoiding head injury, keeping active socially, mentally, and physically. Those are all very good things. In fact, the strongest uh, protective factor that we know of is education. So staying in school as long as you can, going Mm -hmm. back and learning things is very associated with a, a very reduced risk of dementia. Oh, okay. That, I mean, that ties in uh, perfectly with our first uh, segment as well, in, uh, in which we were talking about the pursuit of knowledge and acquisition of knowledge as well. So thank you uh, for that. Um, okay, so I mean, it was wonderful uh, speaking with you. Thank you for, for your insight in regards to this very interesting and important topic. Um, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Tara Jones, um, who is uh, personal chair of neurodegeneration and deputy director of the Centre for Discovery Brain Sciences at the University of Edinburgh, uh, and an expert in synapse degeneration. She received her PhD from the University of Oxford um, and uh, became an assistant professor in 2011, uh, joining the University of Edinburgh in 2013. And like we mentioned earlier as well, she's also passionate about public engagement and science policy, advising the Scottish government as part of the Scottish Science Advisory Council from 2016 to 2019. 
Um, and that, uh, and with that, um, we'll be going into our uh, our last segment for the day. Just quickly, um, while speaking about this topic, uh, we should keep in mind as well that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that there is no disease that Allah has created except that he ha- also has created its treatment. So, of course, um, like we mentioned uh, and like we spoke with our previous guests as well, um, they all mentioned that uh, uh, we are coming to a stage in which we are better understanding um, these diseases, these problems, um, and with time, uh, we'll be able to, we'll be able to diagnose them quickly uh, 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 in, in a quicker manner, um, and maybe even uh, prevent and treat them uh, in a quicker manner, and fully understand the scope of this, so that we can uh, actually. Um, treat it as well um and and like uh, which 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 is actually uh, in in accordance with what the holy prophet of islam may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him has said it i mean of course it would be extremely unfair if god almighty had created an illness to which had uh, no cure isn't it and that's why it's so essential that allah the almighty has also uh, informed us and 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 told us that uh, there is a cure for absolutely everything it's just a matter of us um um uh, finding out more uh testing more researching more and of course with time we will um know the answers for all of these questions as well uh, god almighty emphasizes on numerous occasions in the holy quran that uh, humans will be tried and those who endure the suffering with uh, patience and steadfastness will be amply rewarded. Um, it states in the Holy Quran, chapter 63, verse 3, uh, that who has created death and life that he might try you? Uh, which of you is best in deeds? And of course, referring to Allah the Almighty um, being the one who has created uh, everything, including life and death. Um, and it is he who tries us um, to, to, to understand who of us is best in our deeds. In, in, if we go to chapter 2, verse 156 of the Holy Quran, um, it proclaims, And we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits, but give glad tidings to the patient. Um, um, of course, going to another um, uh, um place within the holy quran it states in uh, chapter 16 verse 71 that allah creates you then he causes you to die and there are some among you who are driven to the worst part of life with the result that they know nothing after having had knowledge surely allah is all-knowing powerful um, and another occasion, um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that no fatigue, nor disease, nor sorrow, nor sadness, nor hurt, nor distress befalls a Muslim, even if it were the prick he receives from a thorn, but that Allah expiates some of his sins for that. Um, and with that, of course, there's so much more that we can speak about as well. Um, but we'll be going to our last segment for the day. We don't have much time left. Um, and this is in regards to the significant amount of oxygen uh, generated through MOXIE experiment on Mars. And the question over here is, what is next? So the gist of the story is basically that through the MOXIE experiment, researchers have been able to successfully produce oxygen on Mars. Uh, this is an uh, instrumental step in the mission to Mars. 
And in this segment, we'll be exploring not only the essence of the MOXIE experiment, but also various goals of the Martian uh, mission that uh, are currently in progress as well. Um, we'll be talking about this uh, in a little bit uh, more detail. But before we get into this, um, we actually did speak with uh, uh, a guest of ours, uh, Michael Hecht, um, who is the Associate Director for Research Management um, at the MIT Haystack Observatory and since 2013 has been a principal investigator for the MOXIE Oxygen ISRU demonstration exper- uh, experiment on NASA's Mars 22 uh, Perseverance rover. Um, and the, this is the interview that we had with him. What is MOXIE and what does it stand for? MOXIE, well, let's start with what it stands for. It stands for the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. That's a mouthful. So in-situ resource utilization in the field is usually um, is usually abbreviated as ISRU. So that's how we get MOXIE. And, of course, MOXIE is a word meaning, um, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, audacity, I think, is the best translation I can I can come up with. It's also in, in the local area a soft drink um, that was started that was that was invented in the 1800s, not far from where I work. So there's a little bit of an inside story. But the important part of that is the ISRU. Okay, the ISRU is a, another is a kind of a, a, a mouthful for. Uh, what we would colloquially call living off the land, all right? I like to joke that LOL was already taken as an acronym so that NASA <laughs> came up with something more more complicated. But it means living off the land. Well, what does that mean? Moxie is about sending a human crew, you know, maybe my grandchildren, I don't know, uh, or your children, uh, to Mars and um, making it, possible, making it feasible, making it affordable, making it safe enough, you know, to to be willing to say, okay, let's take this enormous step for humanity and set foot for the first time on another planet. We've done the moon, but we've never done another planet. Okay, so that is the, um, that's what Moxie's after. So how does Moxie help? Well, living off the land means there's less you need to bring with you. And the largest thing you would need to bring along for a crew of, let's say, four to six astronauts, the single largest thing you would need to bring would surprise most people. It turns out to be a very, very large and heavy tank of oxygen. Uh, 25 to 30 tons of oxygen. That's the single biggest thing. That weighs almost as much as everything else you bring along, uh, including the power plant. So why? Why so much? Well, it's something we don't think about a lot on Earth. But, you know, we often use fuel for energy. And that can be a person eating lunch. That's fuel. It can be the gas in our car. It can be rocket fuel to launch a rocket, which is important here. And whenever any of those fuels uh, you know, burn, or you can say generally, uh, or react to make energy, they need an ox- what's called an oxidant. Oxygen is the most common one, particularly here on Earth, where oxygen is all around us, it's free, and we don't even think about it. So when you put a log on the fire, let's say the log weighs you know, a kilogram, how much oxygen does it use? Well, probably four or five kilograms. 
Can we don't think about that? The same for the gas in your car. If you use a kilogram of gas, it'll use three or four or five kilograms of, of oxygen uh, to burn it. And that's why a tank of oxygen is the single biggest thing. Now, of course, the astronauts you know, need to breathe. That's why we breathe, <laughs> so we can do chemical chemistry uh, to, keep, to provide energy and keep our bodies going. But um, the astronauts might use a couple of tons of oxygen in their stay on Mars for uh, probably a year and a half. And the really big, the really thirsty thing on the mission is not the astronauts. Um, it's the rocket that will take them back into space. And that rocket, you know, I mean, you think how much food the astronauts eat, and then you think how much fuel is in a rocket fuel tank. Okay? It's much, much bigger. And you have to burn all of that, whether it's the astronauts or whether it's the, the, the rocket. So the rocket's going to use at least 25 tons of oxygen. That's why it's the single biggest thing you have to bring back to Earth. That gets us back around to MOXIE. What does MOXIE do? It turns the Martian atmosphere, the very thin Martian atmosphere, if you will, it's making oxygen out of thin air. Okay, and, But what is the air? That is the question. What is the air? The air on Mars is almost entirely carbon dioxide. Now, we know on Earth that plants and trees manage to you know, breathe to, to inspire carbon dioxide, and they, they put out oxygen. So we know this can be done. You can extract the oxygen from carbon dioxide. That's what MOXIE does. It turns that carbon dioxide into oxygen, and it's a very small version. It's not going to be enough to fill up a 25-ton tank because we don't have enough power on the rover to do that. It's simply to demonstrate that this will work, that we can make a machine to do the work of a tree, and we can make a bigger machine in the future to do the work of hundreds of trees. That's amazing. Um, this is, seems like a really amazing um, innovation that something's been invented like this. So how long can an instrument last for? Um, and, you know, it's said that MOXIE produces around 10 grams of oxygen per hour. So is this enough for a human to survive on? I, you and I speaking are probably using 20, maybe if you're on your exercise bicycle while you're speaking, you might be using 30 grams of oxygen an hour. If you're just sitting, probably 20. Moxie can make up to about 10. Um, that's because it's limited by the power on the rover and the space on the rover. It could be made a lot more efficient. We know how to do that. Uh, this is what we can accommodate on this vehicle. It's pretty easy to go from moxie size to something that will support people. It's a whole other story to go to something that will fill up a tank of oxygen for a rocket, which is what we're eventually heading for. The reason it's small, as I said, is because the rover has a very tiny power plant, maybe 100 watts. And when we send humans, when we send our, you know, our grandchildren, it's going to be 25 or 30,000 watts. And while we're waiting, you, know, you, you send all the stuff in advance by a year and a half or so, or two years. And while we're waiting for the humans to come and use the power plant, the big version of MOXIE will use it to make 25 or 30 tons of oxygen and have it ready for them when they arrive. And then, then we say, here's your oxygen, here's your power plant. You know, go have a good mission. 
Um, how long will Moxie last is one of the big questions that we wanted to answer by sending this small Moxie to Mars. It's a very important question. So far, it's lasted uh, a year and a half, uh, you know, and plus the whole testing and then the whole trip to Mars. From the time we last tested it on Earth to the time that it first ran on Mars was over two years. Um, you know, when you think about that, if you didn't turn on your car for two years, would you expect it to work when you did? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Moxie did. Um, we are not running it continuously, and that's still one of the challenges ahead. We turn it on every month or two uh, because it uses a lot of power, and we're not the only experiment on the Perseverance rover. There are many, and we have to share. So we turn it on once in a while. Mm, okay, so I mean, in terms of next steps, is it just to so that it creates more than ten oxygen, ten grams, um, or what are the other steps? What are the other uh, projects that Oxy you know has? Well, yes, there to to go from Moxie to a system that will do what we want to do in the future that will will produce two to three kilograms of oxygen. We need to make everything larger. We know how to do that. We've already made progress in that respect. Um, We need to make it more efficient. We know how to do that. That still has to be demonstrated, but we know how. We have to make sure it can run for, you know, two years. Uh, We haven't done that yet either, but we plan to. And then we have to develop what's called the balance of plant. All MOXIE does right now is it sucks in you know, carbon dioxide, that thin Martian air, and it releases oxygen after measuring it. We have to find, um, develop the technology to store the oxygen, to transfer it to the rocket, to keep it from boiling off in the meantime. Uh, and of course, we need to develop things like the power plants and all the other stuff that is going to have to go to Mars to support the human mission. Moxie is a key part part of that, but it is only one of many parts. Well, this all sounds so exciting, and I wish you all the best in your work. Um, it's amazing, um, you know, the the things that are currently being invented. And thank you for joining us here in the Washington Radio Station today. Um, we really did benefit from your understanding and expertise, and hope to cover this topic in the future. And you know, cover what the next thing that Moxie does um, and the next innovation that happens. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank you as well. Of course, uh, I, I always like to remind people an important part of what we do. We don't do it in a vacuum. Uh, we, what we do we, is to inform, you know, the human species, the entire, the entire global community. And we get so much help in doing that from people like you, from, from journalists, from people in the media. Uh, and, and it's really important to, to say how much we appreciate uh, what you're doing for us. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, the interview that we had uh, with uh, our guest previously, um, um, and uh, of course, so many things that we've we've learned from that discussion as well. Uh, Michael Hecht, uh, Hecht is the uh, associate director for research management in, at the MIT Haystack Observatory, and since 2013, he has been a principal investigator for the Moxie Oxygen ISRU uh, demonstration experiment on NASA's Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance rover. Um, told us about what MOXIE is, what it stands for, um, how it works, um, and all of these other things as well. What are the next steps uh, on the MOXIE project as well?
Yeah, so uh, just to say once again, MOXIE stands for Mass Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, which is in essence a, a small uh, device which lands on Mars and its uh, primary job is to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, which is a huge step for mankind. Once we have oxygen on Mars, then human life can, uh, you know, carry on there. <clears throat> yes um and uh, this brings us to an end for today's show i mean just just before we wrap up quickly um at the address uh, at the first international Ahmadiyya muslim research association conference um his holiness the current head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya muslim community azimiza masoor ahmed he said that indeed allah the almighty has deemed humans as the best of creation because of the fact that we have been granted intelligence and understanding. We have been granted the ability to differentiate between right and wrong. We have been given the ability to think and comprehend. Unique amongst all creation, Allah the Almighty has given mankind the insight to appreciate that whatever He has created has been made for our benefit, on condition that we use it in the right way. Um, and as Ahmadi Muslims we have a very bright future, as foretold by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed um, of uh, Qadian. He said that members, the members of my sect shall so excel in knowledge and insight that they will con- confound everything, uh, sorry, they will confound everyone with the light of their truth and by dint of their arguments and signs. Um, and just lastly, there um, um, at the uh, at the annual convention in Ghana, the current head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said that therefore I advise the youth immerse yourself in studies to the exclusion of everything else, advance so much in every field of education that your minimum target is a Nobel Prize. That requires hard work over a long period, when nations want to develop and progress, they make plans on a long-term basis. Um, and with that, uh, we have come to an end for today's show. Thank you to uh, everyone who contributed in the research, in the production, and of course, the guests for their insight uh, as well. Um, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. And here is the 9 o'clock news.